College admissions can feel very scary. There's all these specialized terms about APs and SAT percentiles. Don't feel overwhelmed by any of it. It's, it's actually something that if you take it piece by piece is not too overwhelming. But as we'll probably see throughout this podcast, it there are very complex systems with complex histories. So again, take it bit by bit and, and don't let yourself get overwhelmed. That is John Moscatello, the founder and CEO of Marco Learning, whose mission is to provide high quality standardized test resources to teachers and students. John is an experienced expert in the college admissions and standardized test industry. Let's hear what he has to say right after this. This is High School Not So Much a Musical, a podcast that takes you on a ride to the peaks and valleys of a high school journey. Here are your presenters, Nitin Jaladanki and Ayush Agarwal. Nitin, do you want to start off with the first question for John? Yeah, I can go ahead and get us started. Our first question for you is, absent standardized testing, what do you think that the college admission system would look like? Because it obviously wouldn't be the same. And what categories such as grades and extracurriculars do you think would be weighted more heavily? So that's a really great question. And by the way, thank you both for hosting me. This is really exciting to be here with you. I've been in the world of standardized tests for a long time, 19 years. I spent 16 years at the Princeton Review, spent the last two and a half as the founder and CEO of Marco Learning. I do tests and it's really hard for me to answer that question because all I've ever known is a world of standardized tests where, you know, the SAT and ACT are big, scary monsters on the horizon and, and there's prep books and there's, there's all these things. So a post standardized testing world, which it kind of feels like we might be entering into or moving towards is a scary world. So everything I'm about to say is just speculation, but I do think in the COVID era, We've seen now something like 84% of all colleges have gone what we call test optional. So they've said like, well, we're not going to require a standardized test. And what they've done during this time period is put more emphasis on grades, more emphasis on extracurriculars. So it's a, it's a great question. It's a scary question for me because I just, you know, when I was your age in high school, this was it. You know, you prepped for the SAT and you needed the SAT or ACT to get in. And this brave new world we're going into, we just don't know. Um, I think the one thing that college admissions officers are, have been saying very loudly to all of you students out there is it does not do not stress about taking an SAT with a mask on in the pandemic. They care. Colleges have cared about your safety. They've cared about making this easy for students. One thing that's really interesting as we think about this like post standardized testing world, post SAT and ACT world, is that a lot of colleges have um, a lot of colleges who were test optional before the pandemic stayed that way. Almost every single college before the pandemic, and there were something like 900 of them that did this when they went test optional they stay test optional so will these new like 1000 colleges that went temporarily test optional stay test optional that still remains to be seen uh yeah i think that makes a lot of sense because if you look at like the trajectory if uh if a lot of colleges are going test optional right now it's highly likely that they might you know even consider going completely test optional in the future but um when a college goes test optional and a student still submits a standardized testing score on the college application, 
how much do you think that colleges actually weigh that score? Yeah, and this is this is that's a really good question and a really tough one because there are about 3000 colleges and universities in America and they all act a little bit differently from each other. You know, there's these other countries in the world that have like a very small set of universities that all act the same and they follow the same rules. Ours don't. So we've seen a real diversity of responses. And just as a reminder to everyone listening, test optional means it's an option for you to submit an SAT or an ACT. Test blind means it's not an option at all. They will not look at your scores. And there's this third category called test flexible, which means they'll accept, you know, SATs or ACTs or even APs. So like I went to NYU as an undergrad, NYU is test flexible and was before the pandemic. That meant you can submit three AP scores instead of SAT or ACT. But your question's interesting because it gets to this issue of like, well, okay, a bunch of people aren't submitting an SAT during a test optional period, but other people are. So what do I do with that score? And NYU is another clue. NYU published, kind of bragged in their press release about the 2021 admission cycle that they had 100,000 applicants and everyone wants to get to NYU. And it was something like an average, their, their median SAT score was a 1540 out of 1600, which means NYU published their median SAT score of those people who submitted a score, presumably people with very high scores, and now they're advertising this very big, scary number. So if NYU is a clue, then colleges are absolutely looking at those high scores as an asset that they can brag about and as proof that you're quote unquote ready for college. So I think certainly admissions officers are going to look at a high score really well. The real question there, I think, in that question is, what will they do with a low score? Does it damage you to submit a 1280 to NYU when they're publishing in a test optional test flexible period a median score of 1540? I think it does. So a lot of the calculations that people are making at these very competitive schools and, and even at other places is a little all over the place. And I've like I said, I've been doing this a long time, but I kind of don't know the answer for students. I think the answer for the past year I've been telling students is be safe. Don't worry about these tests. Um, the answer going forward remains to be seen. I had a really quick follow-up question to what you just said. And you said that a lot of schools have gone test optional, but there's most likely the same admissions officers who are still reading the same applications every cycle. Yeah. And... Um, can they truly just completely change their mind and a uh, point of view to like see an applicant who doesn't have a standardized test score compared to an applicant that does? And how can they truly say that they're test optional if they have the same readers who have the same mindset who have been admitting people for decades now? Oh, that's a tough question. We should get some college admissions officers on this podcast and ask them, right? Because they, I don't know. And I think you're exposing a really important contradiction, which is test optional, like we don't care, but if you've got a good score, we're going to look at it. That seems like, you know, it seems like the real choice for a lot of places, the thing that's the fairest and makes the most sense is just go test blind. Don't look at anyone's test scores. Then you make it really fair. The University of California system, which is the law. You guys are in California. Is that right? Yeah, we're both in California. So your public university system, which is the largest public university system in the world, 
decided not only to go test optional, but then very quickly to go test blind. So now you can't even submit it. And at the very least, you have to admit that's fair. That would resolve the contradiction you have. But I think you've got several issues. How do you take a whole group of people with one job acting as gatekeepers to colleges and universities and like flip it overnight? And how do you have this asymmetry between the people who submit scores and the people who don't? Now, given how bad it was in 2020, how hard it was to actually physically register for a test and like actually that for that test to be like hosted. Um, I had students whose their SAT was canceled three times, their ACT was canceled. It was, it was such a mess. College admissions officers were being really open. Now that issue isn't really going to be there for the, the, the people who are applying in fall 2021. So I think, I think you're onto something. Test optional has set up a bit of a mess and I don't know how you maintain fairness and objectivity and the whatever that college admissions is purports to have in, in, a, in a test optional landscape. So I like that you brought up the fact that many people were getting their tests canceled maybe two or three times. And I actually got thrown into that group in December of 2020 when I was trying to take an SAT subject test and I had to maybe rebook my um, ticket maybe two or three times because every time I booked it, two or three days after they would say your test center is closed. They say that they don't have yeah. the proper COVID precautions in place, so they can't do it. And luckily I had a family that could drive all the way to Sacramento, which is, I would say around 120 miles from here just to take that test. But how does standardized testing affect the poor? And due to their lower and like for lower income level people, they aren't able to access the same types of like prep books and types of prep classes that higher income students have. So how does this negatively affect lower income people who may have more talent than a higher income student has? That's a really good question. And I think you've also you put you put your finger on one of the biggest issues with these tests, which is you can buy a higher score. And as proof, I will offer many years of work that I did at the Princeton Review and, and many things that you can, you know, the expensive test prep programs you can buy. It's part of the reason I founded Marco Learning. Most of the stuff we have at Marco Learning is free or very low cost compared to almost everything in the test prep industry. And I did that because I felt like it was fundamentally unfair. If the SAT and the SAT subject tests were really good, legitimate tests, then you wouldn't be able to pay someone to help your score go up 350 points on the SAT. So that you're right. I think that that's a fundamental inequity. And it's actually why there are a lot of really great college admissions officers who had heated standardized tests for a long time and wished they would go away because they do hold students back. A student who is cut off from access to a test center, cut off from access to test prep, their valedictorian of their high school class, they get a 12-10 on the SAT, which is a very good score, just not, you know, Yale score or whatever, and, and it holds them back. And it shouldn't be that way because that student with a 12-10 with a lot of money and a really top tutor could get a 14-70 and then get in everywhere. And, and so I think that there, you know, there's a lot wrong with the system as it was. We are in a, entering this post-COVID era when we can do better, make the system more fair. And again, you know, as much as I've been complaining about college admissions officers who are, you know, saying that they're not, they're going to be fair about standardized tests, but it's test optional. 
I do know a bunch of them, and they're really many of them are really passionate about equity and fairness to make the make the world a more level playing field. So we, it you know it all remains to be seen. One thing that has been abolished. You said you were taking an SAT subject test. Those were abolished a few months ago. So they literally do not exist anymore. And I think that that is a move in the right direction for a more fair system because those tests were not very good, at least not compared to something like the AP program. Right. Uh, yeah, I totally agree with you that standardized testing does have a negative impact on the poor because they obviously aren't able to access the same level of resources, test prep, et cetera, that the rich have access to. But specifically, even if the poor do get lower scores on standardized testing, maybe they get a two or a three on an AP test instead of a four or five, or they get like a 1100 or a 1200 instead of a, a 1400 or a 1500 on the SAT. Um, do colleges take that into account in any way? And to what degree do they take it into account? Like, do they say, oh, well, this person got a lower score, but I do understand that they're poor. So um, I'm going to like use some sort of systematic calculation to put them on the same level as a person who got a higher score, but they're also in a higher income bracket. How do, how do colleges like compare those uh, two types of applicants? So the, the prerequisite question to that question is, how do colleges know how rich you are? Um, and there's a few different ways actually that they can, if they're interested in that question, they can figure it out. There's a box in the Common App that says, are you applying for financial aid? And if you say no, that means you're willing, you and your family are willing to pay the full $60,000 a year or whatever of tuition at the college. So those students and sorry, you know, there's a lot of, there are officially a lot of colleges that are need blind and don't pay attention to that. There's a bunch that do, and they'll see you as a full paying student and treat you a little bit differently and see you as an advantage because, well, the student who needs financial aid may not come. So there's this, it's weird how it, you know, in a certain sense, you can say, okay, this student is, it comes from a, a situation where they're the first generation, they're the first person in their family to go to college. They grew up in a district that was really poorly supported with government funding or, or uh, they faced a lot of adversities and they overcame that. That's really great. But there's also this other reality, which is um, there's students who maybe even aren't that great of a student, but they have the money to, to kind of uh, to, to push them over the edge. I mean, think about it this way. College admissions is one of the only things in the world where people beg to pay $200,000 to someone else, right? It's kind of like the real estate market right now in, in this crazy period where like people are desperate to like buy a house. Please, can I give you hundreds of thousands of dollars for this house? That's what college admissions is like. You're, you're begging these top institutions to pay them a ton of money. But very many colleges are really in financial constraints and they're looking for anyone who will pay anything. So there's that's that advantage for the for the rich but then in terms of your your actual question which is like what are they doing to to support students who have financial need they uh, there there was an attempt by the college board it got very controversial for something that was called um an adversity score i think the the wall street journal called it but it was really an attempt to just contextualize a student score that this student's coming from a really struggling public school system with no support and did this well. That should be celebrated. So it's it's an it's a very interesting dynamic and an interesting question. There's no one size fits all answer to this, but 
again, very many people in the college admission space are trying to make it as fair as possible to remove those advantages for very wealthy students and to support students who don't have those natural advantages, whose application isn't backed by thousands of dollars of support is maybe one way to frame it. The, the Maybe the final thing I'll say about this is there's this other thing going, a lot of people talk about affirmative action or advantages or disadvantages. There are some baked in advantages for very wealthy people. If you saw that Netflix documentary on the college admission scandal, a lot of those people were trying to buy their way into colleges illegally, but there are legal ways to buy your way into college. A $10 million check that buys a library will often buy a seat for a student who's applying. A student who, whose family can afford $110,000 a year of very fancy uh, support for, um, let's say like, I don't know, polo or like what squash, like these very fancy sports that people play. They fly all around the world for global competitions. That is something that you, takes money to get to. We're about to see it at the Olympics. Um, there are some people who, who are Olympians because their family sacrificed everything to get them there. And there's other people who have a lot of money behind them to get those sailing lessons. Um, and, and so you see some of those dynamics. The other thing, of course, I'll, I'll just add into the mix to make it even more complicated is legacies, right? If, you're, if your parents immigrated to this country and did not attend elite American universities, you're up against some students who have, whose parents and grandparents and great-great-grandparents went to the college and have a library named after them. So all those dynamics converge at once on the college admissions space. And, and again, there's, there's a lot of people working to try to make this fairer. So it's not like where your grandfather went is where you get to go, or simply you come from this neighborhood and therefore we should add points to your application. What's the fairest possible way remains to be seen. Yeah, so I definitely agree with you. There's a lot of class inequality in the college uh, admission system. Uh, you've talked a lot about how like in the status quo in the world as it is today, there is, uh, you talked about the class inequalities that exist right now, such as legacies, buying your way in, etc. Um, I remember in the last call we had, you were, talk you were talking to us a little bit about the history of um, standardized testing, yeah, how it yeah. started off as an elitist program for white male prep schools in the 60s or in the 50s. So um, do you mind expanding a little bit on that, talking about the history of uh, standardized testing and the class inequalities it has had in the past? Yeah. And in fact, that specifically is about the AP program, right, which was this very narrow program for elite prep schools and colleges in, in the 50s and 60s and has since expanded to supporting like three million students a year. But standardized testing more broadly goes back before that by decades where people were trying to scientifically measure intelligence. So how does that work? Scientifically measuring intelligence. How smart are you? And if I, went, if I asked your mom, she'll say you're super smart. My mom will say I'm very smart. And so that's the mom measure, which is always like 100 out of 100 points. There's the there's this sort of like, well, your teacher could sort of say, oh, this kid is in the top 10% of my students, which, by the way, that's on your college application too, right? On the recommendation letter. And I'm an active teacher. I teach at a private school here in central New Jersey. I have to like rank students compared to each other. That's one way to look at intelligence. There's IQ tests, which are not as scientific as they seem. And then there's like SAT and ACT, which are not intelligence tests, but are kind of like 
testing your college readiness, but also not really because in college you don't take tests that look like SAT and ACT. And also not really because the SAT and ACT don't necessarily add that much new information that I don't already have from your teacher and your transcript, not your mom, they're too biased. So the, you know, looking at your transcript, looking at your teachers, I get a lot of information. The SAT and ACT don't add that much. So when we look at the origins of standardized testing, a hundred years ago, it was about measuring human intelligence scientifically. A lot of people, including me, have given up on that. I think intelligence by definition is more complex than a scale of 800 points or one performance on a 40 minute essay. So again, you're, you're sort of looking for like, what is the purpose of a standardized test? Not necessarily intelligence in its current form, SAT and ACT do not tell me about college readiness as much as they think they do. So maybe what standardized tests do is they help me provi help provide an objective measurement. That's what it is, right? It's an objective way of taking you, you're in California, two of you are in California, I'm in New Jersey. How do I compare a New Jersey kid and a California kid and an international student and a kid in North Dakota? Well, I have this objective SAT standard, except if you can hire a tutor and your scores go up 330 points. And then what, what has just happened? Your score went 330 points because you got 330 points smarter. No, that's not it. Your, your score went up 330 points because you're 330 points more ready for college. That's not it. Um, your score went up 330 points, what's happened to my objective metric? So that's the crisis for standardized tests right now. They need to explain why they should exist. And if it's not about intelligence and it's not about what you're studying in school, because parentheses, there's no US history. Are you guys, uh, let's, let's, you guys are gonna be in your junior year next year, is that right? Yeah, we're both gonna be in our junior year. Okay, and what classes are you taking next year? So I can list mine. I do you just want me to list my AP. Yeah, list your classes. What are you taking next year? Okay, so I'm gonna be taking um, an entrepreneurship course. Okay, that's a, not on the SAT. Next, I'm gonna be taking a European history course. Not on the SAT. A literature course, which is AP. Ba barely on the SAT because there's like some reading comp and like one passage. So that's kind of related to the SAT. Next, and um, I'm also taking AP Calculus BC. Okay, that ain't on the SAT. You're miles ahead of the SAT. You got to go back like three years ago to dust off SAT math stuff. Okay, what else? And I'm also taking AP Physics 1. Okay, also not on the SAT. Are you taking a foreign language? No, I actually opted not to take AP Spanish, but I am taking Spanish 4. Okay, so Spanish 4 is uh, also not on your SAT. So, so Nitin, that's a great example of like, you are going to spend your most important academic year, the last full complete year for your college application, taking a bunch of courses that have nothing to do with the SAT. So this is where AP comes in. And AP is really quite different, right, from SAT, because actually you mentioned a lot of AP classes. Those will have a standardized test at the end. And a lot of people know, like, you can't wing it on AP Calculus BC. I know, because I'm a test prep tutor, and I can't, I haven't gone near calculus in 20 years, and no, I it would be a one for me. It's a one, I'd say I got my TI-84, cry, and get a one. Um, so you can't fake it 
on AP exams. And that's why AP, the question hanging over standardized tests is really, is the AP program going to remain the dominant program? Because just a story that a lot of people have missed in recent years is the largest standardized testing regime in human history by a mile is the AP program. It's bigger than SAT and ACT combined. The AP program on the eve of the pandemic, there were 5.3 million exam registrations. In a typical year for SAT and ACT, it's under 2 million each. So the AP program is poised to really replace the old standardized tests that have nothing to do. Like we went through that list of your classes, like they have nothing to do with this stupid test. They do have something to do. And here's the thing, if you can accomplish fives on your AP exams, fours and fives, it's going to be really hard for an admissions officer to say, this kid isn't ready for college. So I think that's that's kind of the answer to this question. And something we're going to see is, can the college board position the AP program to replace all those old stupid standardized tests and move past its origins? The AP program, again, came from a few prep schools and a few white male students and is now much more for everyone. Like what you just listened to? Well, you're in luck. This is part one of a two-part series with John Moscatello, where we will discover and uncover the hidden secrets behind standardized testing and the college admissions process. Next time, you will find out the guaranteed formula to get you into your dream college. Sounds pretty good, right? Well, tune in next time. Thank you so much for joining us on our first episode of High School Not So Much a Musical. And a big thank you once again to John Moscatello. That's our show for today. Now roll the credits. High School Not So Much a Musical is hosted by Ayush Agarwal and Nitin Jaladanki. Narration by Samhit Padala. Music from Louis Luong Relaxation Cafe, Tune Pocket, and Infraction. If you like this show, please recommend it to your friends and family. Thank you for listening and see you next time.